Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Yeah, it's great to be back here with you. Hi Yosefa, it's fun to be back. We're here for the second installment of this mini-series on uh, character sketching in Tanakh, uh, where we're trying to sort of focus on characters, how to understand them, how to gain insight into them, uh, really working with the psukim as they are, and to notice all the different subtle signs uh, and ways that the Tanakh tries to convey the depth of the, of the characters that we read about. Today we really want to focus on uh, a complete character sketch, right? To start at the beginning uh, and and to get towards the end, quote unquote. And in order to do that, we want to uh, we're going to focus on Moshe, probably maybe the most. Do you think the most developed character in all of Tanakh? Uh, I would go with David or Moshe. Well, well, no, I don't know if most developed. I would say longest story. So we get so much information about them as as people and as developing characters. Yeah, totally. Uh, and to to start our our exploration, I want us to open to uh, to Shemot Perak Bet, the second chapter of uh, of the book of Exodus. Maybe I'll just jump in and say that this is a uh, not so common instance of really getting to know a character before he's chosen by God. Right, so we're, right. we're really we have gonna... other. We have Shimshon, who we also, I think, might have mentioned last time. Uh, we have a bunch. I, I will say that when we get to know them before they're born, uh, certainly if it's a miraculous story, which it usually is, uh, it raises our expectations for what we expect from this character. Now, Moshe doesn't disappoint, whereas Shimshon, yeah. uh, that's a much Does. more complicated topic. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, but Shimshon, we don't actually get to know his character before he's chosen by God, because he's chosen before right. he's born. But when we get whereas, to know him as, as he's developing yes. uh, in, in utero also, and then after that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so birth stories are highly significant, and as I said, there are uh, there's a general genre of, of seven miraculous birth stories uh, of women who are unable to have children and then have children. Uh, but in the case of Moshe, as you're saying, Yael, we actually have a tremendous amount of detail about him himself as, as a young child, which is not something that we usually have. Perik Bet and Sefer Shmot really divides into uh, into two parts and then with an epilogue. Uh, the first ten psukim speak about Moshe as a passive child. Uh, he's this child who was miraculously saved when I'm sure many other baby boys experience a similar fate, although his end was obviously very different than many of theirs. And he's surrounded by a series of anonymous women who, of course, play a very significant role in his survival. Um, but they're kept anonymous, it seems, in order to keep our focus on Moshe. We have his mother, we have his sister, we have Bat Paro, we have her Na'arot, we have her maidens, but only, uh, but the, the unit there culminates with him receiving his name. And that's in Pasuk Yud, in, in verse 10. Um, that she is called Vetikrashmo Moshe, Vetomel Kimin Hamai Meshitihu. He's called Moshe because he was drawn out from, from the waters. Um, but the development, the active development of Moshe's character really begins in Pasuk Yud Aleph. Uh, although I think it is important to note that Moshe the, ba- Moshe the baby here is very much described um, in, in great detail as a baby, which means that the foundations of his adult life lie in these ten 
verses where women save him. Now, it doesn't surprise us at all that his mother and sister save him, but it certainly does surprise us uh, that Bat Paro is also involved in saving him. And so we see that female compassion lies at the heart of this story, right? But Tachmol Alav, which does come up later in Moshe's life uh, in significant ways. Yeah. Um, where he describes himself perhaps in an exasperated way uh, as, as a woman, right? As a woman caring for Am Yisrael. Um, his, the female side shows up later on in yeah. Moshe's life. In Bimidbar Yudalif. Yes. Right, yes. And there he says, what, did I birth them, yeah. this nation? You know, am I supposed to be what what these female figures were to me? Am I supposed to be for Am Yisrael? Maybe right. I don't have the the tools or the mechanism. Yeah. So this is a very important part of Moshe's life, I yes, agree. Yeah. for sure. Um, but then we really see his active, uh, his, his growing up, his, his youth. Here we have a series of three vignettes that are really lie at the heart of Moshe being chosen uh, as the leader of Am Yisrael, right? Very rarely do we have any explanation regarding why God chooses, right? We have from the most extreme to, you know, of Amos, where he's literally taken from his life, his agricultural life beforehand. But here we have what I think needs to be read as the explanation for why God chooses Moshe as a leader in the next parak. And the first, the first vignette begins with the fact that Moshe grows up. He has at some point discovered that he is not actually an Egyptian child. And therefore, he knows that his brethren are the, the Israelites who are suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. And he goes and he sees uh, uh, Ishmitzri, who is hitting, who is abusing uh, one of the Hebrews. Okay, and there, we don't know if he necessarily intended to kill him. He definitely intended to harm him. Uh, the that he looks around uh, seems to connote that there was intention uh, behind his, his behaviors, whether or not he intended to kill him or not. Uh, and he actually kills the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand. The second vignette, and he sees two Hebrews. Now it's a different group of people that are fighting with each other. And he says to the one who he perceives to be incorrect, who's called the Rasha here, why are you hitting your brethren? And he gets this really, I would say, sort of chutzpahdik response from the, from the one who's called the Rasha, right? Who put you as, as a, as a judge above us, right? Who made you, who made you king? Uh, are you going to kill us? It reminds us of stone, right? Yeah. Right, the people of stone, what they say to Lot when he, uh, behaves with justice. This isn't a place of justice. How dare you try to introduce, you know, righteousness into our place. Yeah. Uh, and he said, are you going to do that? Are you going to hurt us? You're going to kill us just like you killed the Egyptian? And, and then Moshe realizes that actually, apparently this is known, right? It's known what, what has happened. Um, I will say also, Yael, that here where he says to Moshe, are you, are you a sarva shofet? That it also, I think, throws us much later on to the story with Yitro, 
much later on to where he is actually the Tsar and Shofet over all of Am Yisrael. And Yitro says to him, you do not need to do that, right? You do not need to be the one who's in charge of everybody. You need to put in place a system that will be much more effective. And so this story here sort of also a little bit foreshadows Moshe's actual role that he will fulfill later when he is a leader of Am Yisrael and he also adjudicates for them in all of their, in all of their cases. Right. Well, I mean, in terms of that Yitro story, so I'm going to give the positive spin on it, which is that it's not that Moshe was acting too much of a Sarva Shofet, but that what's beautiful about that story and the way it interrelates with here is the word Reecha. Right, because here, what is missing for Moshe is camaraderie. It's a sense of 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 being reim, which is, of course, our central goal of the Torah. Right, the middle of the Torah is kamocha. Right, you should love your re'e, your your friend, your fellow uh, Israelite mm-hmm. as yourself. And here, what what horrifies Moshe is that there's not a sense of collegiality of identification and, and so what happens in the Yitro story is that Moshe is working very very hard to create peace bein ish levin re'ehu there right so I, I agree with you that this story I think also that he's he's used to he's used to acting alone meaning Moshe also as a leader he has a Haron which is a tremendous companionship but in this story if we look at it sort of as a little bit of a, a foreshadowing or a DNA for what comes later that Moshe is used to acting alone. And later on, Yitro has to tell him that you don't need to be everything, right? You, you can be part of things. You can, you can delegate to others. Yeah. Well, he had to act alone. Here he had to. I know, but it's also something that someone has to get used to not doing that later on. Meaning when you get, you're so used to being the, the maverick and being in, in charge and, and spearheading new projects. So it takes time to learn how to, how to delegate. Verse 15. Paro hears about what's happened and he want, he puts out a death sentence for Moshe. And Moshe runs away to Eretz Midian. And here we're sort of also meeting up with another idea we spoke about in the last episode of the well scenes, of, of meeting your wife at the well, which we'll put that on the side, but it's also an important frame for the story. But here we're already meeting the third vignette out of the series of three, where we get a very deep sense of who Moshe is at the out, at the outset. And here we have the story of the a priest of Midian of uh, and all of his daughters who are ha- who are at the well, uh, and they're being harassed. They're being harassed by other uh, by other shepherds. I'm skipping to Pasuk Yud Zayin, uh, verse seventeen. And he manages to kick out. And these are words that play a very important a role in the story in the Exodus story that will come after the the verb um reshin okay garash uh, and also vayoshian that he sa- he saves them okay these are two important verbs that already foreshadow the Exodus story after this uh, and so Moshe in a small way performs the Exodus for for these women and he and they go home and they they apparently rush home they get home very quickly and he says why did you run home today and and they say ish mitzri and here we know that Moshe still looked like an Egyptian ish mitzri and he also he saved us from the other shepherds and he also um he also gave water to our to our sheep uh, and then we have a shidduch that's made at the end of the story okay he 
he starts, he dwells with them and he marries one of his daughters. And then the story ends with a child being born. Yeah, like it's been like a whole episode just talking about the naming of the son. But I do just want to say that from the character sketch perspective, we've started with the birth of a baby boy and we've ended with the birth of a baby boy. And so we also get a sense that while this is just the beginning of Moshe's life, there's a very significant coming full circle that's happened just within this first chapter of Moshe as a baby who's being saved and then and then his son Gershom. There's a really interesting dissonance between the name that he gives him and what his name actually sounds like and the root that is suggested earlier in the story. Right? He speaks about himself as being a foreigner and he's speaking to the emotional experience, um, which Eretz is talking about. He's talking about Midian, um, he's talking about Mitzrayim, um, but he's speaking to his emotional space where he where he feels alone and he feels that he is not in his natural habitat. Um, but I want us just to look at this series of three stories. The first we have Moshe creating um, or trying to create peace or seeking justice more accurately between an Egyptian and an Israelite. In the second story, it's between two Israelites. And in the third story, it's between um, Midianite women and and other shepherds. Okay, so we sort of get the sense that Moshe's justice-seeking knows no bounds, right? It's not just about people are his kin. It goes far beyond that. It's an equal opportunity quest for justice. Look, the first one to point this out was the Abarbanel, I, th- I believe. Uh, but Achad Ha'am wrote a very interesting essay called Moshe, where he talks about these three incidents as being the foundation of Moshe's uh, Moshe's heroic character and his ability to uh, have compassion for all and to and to save again, not based as you said, not based on ethnicity, but yeah. rather based on a strong sense of justice and compassion for the oppressed. Yeah, I will say also just from the the Levite perspective that here you begin to see a series of stories where. There's a little bit of a tikkun. There's a little bit of a of a of a repair that's made. That where you have Levi and Shimon in Sefer Breshit are justice seeking after Dina's rape in a way that obviously goes beyond what many of us are morally comfortable with. Did here you have Moshe also doing that? There's also a killing that goes on here, but the frame is is I think undoubtedly positive, meaning he is using that. You want to disagree? <laughs> no, I don't want to disagree. I agree with you that it's. Positive, but it, but there are midrashim that are very critical of Moshe here. hundred percent. Because there's a vigilante kind of justice for someone who's going to become the lawgiver and yet starts out his life in this act of justice, which is done very spontaneously and very instinctively. Yeah. And he kills the Egyptian without any, um, Look, I mean, again, you know, the Ramban will explain and, and Nitziv explains this as well. He had no choice. It's a place where there's no justice. But some of the Midrashim are, are, are very concerned about this, what you called Levite-like quality yeah. of, um, you know, seeking a vigilante kind of, uh, Justice. We have it also later on with Pinchas. It's it's yeah. part of the yeah. There's a, there's a lot character. of hesitation that is that is expressed. Uh, certainly, also among modern interpretations, there is you know it divides among those who believe that these are stories that are meant to that are meant to show you why God cho- why God chooses him. So can it possibly be something that reflects negatively about him? I also say that you know right here in this conversation we are 
sort of putting out there the complexity of what it means to character sketch, meaning one can frame stories in many, many different ways. And this, these 10 psukim, I would say for a whole series, if I just look at the academic responses, is a very negative uh, reflection of Moshe, as you're explaining also has, is many earlier echoes in Midrashim. And then there are others that present it as, no, it must be something positive, meaning it's something that, again, is morally complex, but that it itself is meant to show you why God chooses Moshe as the leader of Am Yisrael, because he wanted somebody who's justice-seeking, knows, knows no bounds. Yeah. I would say the vast majority of Midrashim and Parshanim are going to read it the way that you presented it, yeah. which is that it's exceedingly positive, and it's the reason for Moshe's selection. I think that's the better shot reading. But what I love about the world of Midrash is that the world of Midrash is willing to explore complexities. Um, and, you know, even though um, we're inclined to see this as something very positive because of the context. I, I want to add one more thing to something that you said before, which I think further kind of uh, shows the complexity of Moshe's characterization, and that is that in Pasuk Yud Aleph, when you were reading the description of Moshe growing out, right? He goes out to his brothers, you know, and then you know he sees that they're suffering, and then right away he, um, you know, he 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 uh, kills this Egyptian. Right? He sees this Egyptian that's striking a Jew me'echav, right? So most of uh, those people who who read this, right, the Mefarshim, the Midrashim, say, "Wow, look at Moshe!" Even though he grew up in the palace, he already knows that he identifies. With the, the Jewish people, with, with the Israelites more, more accurately. Ibn Ezra actually says something, I think, remarkable in this pasuk, which is that the word echav, um, which appears twice in this pasuk, points to two different groups. And that when Moshe emerges from the palace, he's going out to his Egyptian brethren. But then, vayar besivlotam, he sees not their passive suffering, but he sees the suffering that the Egyptians are imposing on others. And then he, he switches allegiance and he begins to identify with the Israelites. And that takes me back to what I think is maybe the main point that we've said so far about Moshe's character. And that is that he's saving not based on ethnicity, but based on a strong sense of empathy for those who are oppressed. Right. And we see this here as well. What what causes him to switch allegiance and say, whoa, those Egyptians, they're no longer my brethren. Now I identify with the Israelites What when he sees their behavior. And then when he sees that the Israelites are misbehaving, he leaves them as well. So that we have these three vignettes that I think characterize Moshe, but they characterize Moshe first and foremost as a person of morality and one who cannot abide injustice. So, so that his vigilante behavior, in my mind, is ex- exceedingly positive because what he's saying is, is when something is going so deeply wrong, I refuse to stand aside and let it continue to happen. And I don't identify with those people, no matter how close I felt to them before. I mean, imagine how much better history would have been, you know, for the Jews, but also for everybody, if people refuse to stand by the side and watch injustice and oppression happen, you know, without, without any uh, um, response. You know, I, 
I can hold back because there's one of my favorite vorts. If I, I think I use that word only with regard to this one pasuk. But in response to what you brought with the Ibn Ezra, um, I, it's I, it's said in the name of the Rabbi Mikotsk, but that could mean that it could be anybody because there's a lot of a lot of Mamrot that are said in his name. They may not be his, but um, it says Vayifen Kovecho in in the continuation of when you just went back to the first vignette that he looks he looks you know to each side. Um, and that the whole pasuk is sort of brought internally to Moshe, right? He looks inside because he has these, he's the Egyptian and the Israelite, right? Which side is he on? So he looks to the Egyptian and the Israelite side inside of him. Vayalki en ish. But he sees that if you're on both sides, you're actually on neither side. And there's, there's no man left. Vayacheta mitzri betocho, right? He kills the Egyptian inside of him and he buries him in the sand. And that, that pasuk is looked at as sort of as like the official end of Moshe's Egyptian identity. That from then on, although you're pointing out the complexity of it, but now he's an Israelite, but in a second he's going to be yelling at the Israelites. So it's not as much about his Egyptian or Israelite identity as much as it is about his justice seeking identification with the underdog identity that we'll see that comes out so strongly. But I, I, I love that. I love that, uh, that little word. Um, where, you know, everything is from the outside is taken internally to Moshe's inner life. Yeah. Yeah. Mo- Moshe's definitely struggling here. And it starts again. It goes back to the story of Moshe as a baby where he's saved by his, his biological Israelite mother, but also by his woman. Egyptian adopted mother who is no less compassionate. And maybe because of, of how surprising it is that she behaves in this, in this way teaches him something very fundamental about what compassion is meant to be. I mean, she also goes against the law in order to save him. Absolutely. So, you know, him going against the law, perhaps to save the underdog, is also a continuation of the kindness that she, that she bequeaths to him. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's the beginning of Moshe's development. Yeah, I'll take us throughout the next step. So, you know, I think what's interesting, what happens later on in, uh, in, in the story is that Moshe is chosen by God in the next parak, in the next chapter, right? So it seems pretty, um, pretty clear, at least to me, that Moshe is chosen by God because of his morality, because of his, his, his deep sense of, uh, justice and his inability to stand by the side while injustice is being perpetuated. Um, but you know, the, the, or perpetrated, I think is the word I was looking for. Um, but you know, what happens in the next parak is actually, um, is actually less smooth than we would expect because Moshe, um, encounters the burning bush. And of course he does go and, 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 you know, examine the burning bush and he goes to see it. And at this point, of course, God introduces himself to Moshe, um, and, you know, explains, uh, in Pasuk Vav, in Paragimel, Anochi, Elohe, Avicha, Elohe, Avraham, Elohe, Yitzchak, Elohe, Yaakov. And then the, the, after God has introduced himself, Moshe hides his face. Okay, Moshe hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. What's interesting here is that um, the Midrashim really debate whether or not this is an, this is okay. Is it okay that Moshe hides his face from God? Well, that's a very natural reaction when people come into into direct contact with whether it's an angel or or it's it's God Himself. 
that's a that's you know either they fall on their face or they that's the same same way of, of hiding your face. It's it's too much. It's too intense. Yeah, we have it with Eliyahu, and we have Gideon's deep fear when he when he meets a malach when he realizes that it's a malach. So you're right that it seems very natural, and that would account for those you know chachamim who say Moshe did entirely the right thing. That's what you're supposed to do. It shows your atakavod, right? It shows your great it's reverence. A, it's a natural response. Right when we see something that is too overwhelming, we we turn away. That's a, a natural response. Yeah, um, but there is another approach, which is that Moshe should not have turned away from God at this moment. And the reason I believe for that approach is because of what happens in the continuation of the story, where God gives Moshe. A mission, right? And, and it's a very, you know, it's a very important mission. It's one that seems to cohere with Moshe's, uh, kind of deep essential self that we saw in the last part, which is, you know, I've commanded you now to go bring Am Yisrael out of Egypt. I've seen the oppressions of Egypt and Moshe refuses five times, right? He doesn't refuse once. And actually, one of the things that I think sometimes people miss about this story is that the story ends with a crisis. It doesn't end well, the story of the burning bush. You know, we tell the story in a very idealistic kind of um, excitement. I, I, you know, I assume most children grow up assuming that the story of Moshe, Moshe and the burning bush is a story that is, is, is successful, but it ends vayichar af. Hashem b'Moshe, right? It's not a Mission Impossible story where he then accepts the mission and he goes forward in his nice car and continues on and does what God says. Yeah. It's not so smooth. No, it's not so smooth. And it ends with God, Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe. God is angry at Moshe and there does seem to be some kind of consequences, anger. You know, what what exactly is the punishment is debated among the different Mepharshim. But the, the sense that Moshe is hesitant to accept upon himself this task seems to um, seems to uh, seems to be tied to one of two things, or maybe both things. One is that he seems to have given up on Am Yisrael, right? When he left Egypt after seeing that you know the 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 Israelites are not particularly deserving of being saved, of being taken out. They they don't necessarily have the tools or the uh, inclination to set up a moral society, right? Because of what you cited before, mi samcha sar v'shofet aleinu, right? Mm-hmm. You know, who who, who made you um, uh, the arbiter of justice, right? Um, we don't want justice. But the other thing I think that we sense here is that Moshe, and this is something that I think, you know, we see right away when Moshe covers his face, is that in Moshe's first contact with God, he feels both unworthy and maybe unwilling to plunge into this sort of relationship right and you know even later on you know when 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 uh when when god says to moshe um you know when moshe refuses five times Two of his refusals seem to revolve around the people, right? Hain lo ya aminuli, they're not going to believe me, right? I'm going to come to them and they're going to say to me, what's your name? What should I respond to them? But two of these responses seem to really 
um, or these refusals seem to really be based in Moshe's own sense of either personal unworthiness or, or more likely unworthiness before God, right? This almost unwillingness uh, to take upon himself this task. So it's a bumpy it's a, start. It's a self-effacement to a fault. It's a bumpy start, right? Mm-hmm. He says, Who am I that I should go to Paro and take Amisar Amisar? And God's response is, It's not who you are. It's about me. It's who I right. am, and I'm going to be with you. Right, but we also, this is also part of a broader frame of the, right, the refusal, right? The the first time God comes to meet you, tells you you have a task, and, and, and the leader refuses. We have a number of stories that are like this. Um, we could, you brought up Gideon before. Um, we have Yirmiyahu. Uh, and it also seems that God, it's a bumpy start, but it also seems that God wants his leaders humble, right? Meaning better that they start from a place of self-effacement to a fault than just be utterly enthusiastic to receive the mission. And then from there, well, they'll only get to haughtiness. You know, it'll take about two stories to get there. I don't know. I think there's different models, right? We have the Noach model, which is utter obedience, um, which again, you're right, has its drawbacks. We have the Avra model, Lech Lecha, Vayelech, right? Which, you know, again, may have its drawbacks. Later on, Avraham is going to question God. Um, All of our great leaders uh, question God, right? I think that's one of the beautiful things in Tanakh. But I do think it's really particularly important for, to understand Moshe's character, which is what we're doing, to note that in the beginning of his story, he does, he, he's having, um, not an easy time accepting upon himself the, 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 the divine mission, the spiritual mission, right? So that when he covers his face and he says, who am I? And God says, well, it's not really about you, right? And then later on he says, you know, oh, lo ish dvarim anochi, I can't possibly speak. And God says, well, misam ha, misam, Peladam, right? Who gave people the ability to speak? So, you know, that there's a process whereby Moshe is internalizing this, um, uh, faith in himself that has to be tied to his faith in God. Yeah. In the beginning, you're also suggesting that Moshe was attributing too much to his own, his own actions, meaning he didn't realize as much that God was going to be the one that was going to be propelling the mission. Yeah, or or he doesn't necessarily want to embark upon that sort of mission that requires him to kind of uh, relinquish his own sense of self or his own sense of his own abilities. You know, and then later on, of course, you know, he's going to say the opposite to God, right? Later on when he's standing on Har Sinai and he's going to ask God to see his face, right? So that's the opposite of here, where he uh, covers his face um, from God, because which again, as I said, you know, you, you rightly said this seems to be intuitive, and it seems to be, I would even say, a positive response in many ways, because it shows us his humility and it shows us his, as we said, his yirata kavod, his reverence. On the other hand, I think it also shows a beautiful process, a process whereby in the beginning. He feels unworthy 
and he covers his face as he stands before God. But as he progresses in the relationship and he becomes Moshe, who is the ultimate spiritual being, he is the one, Asher Yidao Hashem Panim El Panim, right? He's, the, you know, who God knows him face to face. God speaks There's to him. There's that word Rea again. Yeah, yeah. God speaks to him like a person speaks to, to a friend. I mean, it's such an, it's such an anthropomorphic kind of uh, description. It's, it's really extraordinary. But Moshe himself is willing to change in this regard. And, and he changes as a spiritual figure. And I think that's a wonderful depiction of Moshe, which we won't notice unless we, unless we can also be a little bit critical of as Chazalar, of him covering his face in the beginning. Maybe not even critical. You don't have to be critical. You can say that's the beginning of the journey, and that by the time we get to our Sinai, Moshe is in a different place. I think though also both of them represent a certain bookmark, right? In the beginning, he is on the low end of, right? He, it, you, again, presented it slightly, slightly negatively, um, but by the end, when he asks to see God, that also is going too far, meaning he errs he on, on each side of the spectrum, us learning from that, that obviously the healthy place is somewhere in the middle, meaning for a spiritual leader on Moshe's level, it's a very high end of the spectrum. But for most of us, it's somewhere in the middle, right? It's not to be self-effacing and it's not to be, to see all of God's glory, but it's to live somewhere in, in the, in the mystical space in between those two. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think we see particularly with Moshe, we see a real development of his spiritual character. I mean, ultimately, you know, when we ask ourselves, who is Moshe and, and, and why was he chosen? And, and, and who does he become after he's chosen? I think that the answer to these questions are really embedded in these two chapters that we begin with. But they, but when we look at the end of Moshe, we also see that he's a, a real developed figure. We can even just look at the water motif for anyone, you know, who hasn't heard that, right? The water motif is one that's highly significant in Moshe's career, uh, whether it's Kriyat Yam Suf when he uh, helps Am Yisrael uh, cross the, cross the Yam Suf. Um, of course, later his end, right? The, the fateful downfall comes also through uh, a rock and water. Uh, and so that, that theme sort of accompanies Moshe throughout his life. If we talk about something in the beginning that resonates as, as he continues forward. Um, it's what saved him. It's what helps him save others. Uh, and ultimately it's, it's also what keeps him back, um, where it seems he's supposed to be. He wasn't really fated to continue with Am Yisrael into, into Eretz Yisrael. But yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, we talked a little bit about his development as a spiritual figure. I think also as a moral leader, He's meant to develop, right? And what what is what is interesting is that in the beginning of his life, we talked a lot about his vigilante act of hitting the mitzri, vayach et mitzri, and that act kind of um, ultimately uh, sets into motion his his the fateful decree that he cannot yeah. enter the land because instead of using his, his words, words, right, he vayach, right, he 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 strikes the rock. And that's why that midrash that I alluded to previously, where which which is critical of Moshe for hitting the Mitzri, says that's the reason he doesn't enter the land. And I would venture to say that had Moshe allowed his, um, you know, his his kind of approach to leadership to develop the way that he allowed his spiritual leadership to develop, perhaps he would have been able to enter the land. 
I mean, again, you know, that's 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 a, 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 a that's a specu- speculation, but there is some kind of connection between Moshe, the early vigilante, which may have been right for that time, and Moshe standing on the cusp of entrance into the land, still acting with this um, kind of instinctive uh, force that illustrates that maybe he has not particularly developed in that arena as much as he has as a spiritual um, character. Right. And so also if we look at just the the motifs themselves, so we're seeing how how the hitting and that, that verb of vayach, uh, and also and also the water that they come back in, in Moshe's life. Are there any other, I'm trying to think out loud, any other motifs that also come back for Moshe in the, the last years? You know, we've sort of looked very much at the beginning of his life. Yeah, well, you know, some uh, some of the scholars point out that if you look at Perak Bet as a whole, so the exact middle of the Perak is where Moshe is dealing with the two Ivrim Nitzim, right? The two Israelites who are fighting. And that that becomes Moshe's struggle. See, you know, what's interesting in the well scene also, I'm skipping ahead for a minute in, mm-hmm. in Perak Bet, is that Moshe, when he gets to the well, similar to Yaakov, when yeah, he gets he to the well, there. meets an obstacle. Yeah. But Yaakov's obstacle is an inanimate one. And Moshe's obstacle is a human one. And that through, that's, that's really, I think, Moshe's life. He's the great lawgiver and what he's struggling with. And that, you know, if we could sort of summarize so much of what we've spoken about in today's uh, episode, what he's struggling with on so many levels is about how to be a lawgiver, how to, how to bring about a world of more justice. Is it, um, an ethnic question, right? Is it, uh, um, one that requires sort of instinctive acts of justice? Is it one that, you know, um, one has to develop also their spiritual character in order to be, uh, equipped to adequately deal with the, um, with the with the challenges, and maybe maybe you want to say something also about Yitro in this regard, right? We didn't even speak about Moshe's meeting with Yitro and how that plays. In, well, we did a little bit speak about it. Yeah. Uh, how that plays into um, why in this initial character sketch, it's so important that Moshe, who becomes the lawgiver, meets a a Yitro or Kohen Midian or Ruel or whoever whoever it is that he's meeting here at, at the well. Yeah, I think if I can sort of dovetail what you just said, which is that Moshe, like many Nevi'im, are in this constant, very complex interplay between God and the people. Uh, it's just that Moshe was so close to God, right? He's the closest that anyone was. But it's constantly this struggle how to translate that divinity, that spirituality, or those, you know, spiritual laws and and communicate them to the people who are always going to be much more complex than than the other side of the picture. Uh, and I think what you were like alluding to before was this idea that when we meet when we meet Moshe in his conversation with Yitro later on, before um, by Matan Torah by where by uh, by the Torah being given, is that you have Moshe running around constantly trying to be everything for everybody and and trying to adjudicate in all these cases. And Yitro says to him, "You don't have to do this, right? You you can, it's this happens to us all the time in life where." We uh, give a little example from life. I remember years ago, I had a very, very hard time with like the evening routine. I think at that point I had two kids. And, and I remember that someone, I would describe a situation to someone one time and they were like, one second, why are you 
bathing your two children separately. And I was like, I don't know. I think maybe just because I was used to it or there was different times. I wanted each person, each child there a long time. And she was like, put them in the bath together and then move on. And then you'll have a much more, I don't remember, it was just silly suggestion, but it was a suggestion that like totally changed the way the evening looked. And I sort of think about that when I think of the story of Moshe and Yitro. Somebody all of a sudden sees you from the outside and is like, that's utterly illogical what you're doing. Let me help you from my perspective on the outside. Look at what you're doing and say, this isn't logical. You need to have other people helping you. You need to have a judicial system. There are too many people. The nation has proliferated and you can't do it all possibly yourself. And I think that we might see there a sort of the early beginnings of Moshe, where he is trying to adjudicate between two Israelites. It doesn't go very well. And so perhaps Moshe is still trying to sort of placate everybody as as time goes on and doesn't see that he can also pass on that ethical, spiritual wisdom to others, right? Who It's also part of it is training other people to be able to do that. Um, but so Yitro sort of sees him still being that, that one person who's trying to make peace between all these different sides, as we see in Moshe's early life. But then Yisrael says, you don't have to do that anymore, right? You don't, you don't have to function like that. It's not necessary. And it's actually ultimately not going to be helpful for you or the people. Uh, and so I think also there we see a tremendous development, again, from sort of an early scene in Moshe's life in Perak Bet to, to around the story of Matan Torah. Yeah. And I would just add that the other, I think, really extraordinary point that has to be made about Yitro's relationship with Moshe is that Yitro sets up the judicial infrastructure of Am Yisrael, even though he is not an Israelite. And later on, when Moshe invites him to come, he says, no, 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 I, I, you know, elechli el artiv el moladti, I'll go to my land, my birthplace. He makes the opposite move of Avram, which I think is making a similar point that we made previously about Moshe on an equal opportunity quest for justice so that, you know, he is also willing to learn from uh, truth and justice from the outside. And, and this is, I think, ultimately all taking us to the goal of Am Yisrael. The goal of Am Yisrael is not to set up uh, a system of morality uh, just for us. It's one that is meant to impact the world at large, which I think ultimately Harsinai does, right? If you look at, at some of the laws uh, presented in Parshat Mishpatim and you compare them to ancient Near Eastern legal codes and you see some of the, um, the sort of basic foundational values that change in, 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 in the Torah, what I think what you see is, and, and you know, so much of Western civilization is based on this, the, the value of human life being, I think, the prime example. So that ultimately Moshe as this, um, universal person of justice is doing something which I think, um, is, is, this is his ultimate goal. And we see this in so many subtle and wonderful ways at the beginning of his story and, and the fact that Yitro becomes such an integral part of his story. Sort of to close out the episode today, 
Uh, I want us to sort of look very quickly, uh, perhaps rapid fire, a throwback to our first season, uh, some metaphors that are used in characterization. And what, what we mean by this is that when you as the, as the learner, as the reader come up against these ideas, that it's important to note that they aren't just a physical description, but that they're meant to point at something much deeper about the characterization, uh, at that point of, of the character being spoken about. So let's just, let's run through a little list. Okay. Um, okay, I'll begin. Uh, blindness, okay? Um, that we have, uh, in Parsha in Sefer Breshit, where we have with Yitzchak, we have also an example with, uh, with Yaakov and with Eli, where somebody becomes old and they are blind. They cannot see well any longer. Now, this isn't just a description. It also, by the way, doesn't come up all that often. So it's also very significant. Um, that somebody's eyes are darkened or dimmed. It has to do with the fact that they no longer are able to see the situation for what it is. Uh, I think I'm quoting you when I say a lack of sight is a lack of insight. Okay. That, that this is pointing to something much deeper, that they are now no longer operating with their full capacity of, of human, of human insight at yeah, this point in the I'll story. I'll pick up on that point and say, well, you know, aside from the obvious ones who are blind, like Yitzchak and Yaakov, we also have Eli HaKohen and like Yitzchak and Yaakov, Eli's blindness finds particular expression in his inability to properly rebuke his sons. Um, and so, you know, I'll add on a, a, another uh, tool of characterization, which is with regard to Eli, which is that Eli is presented twice as sitting on a chair. So, I mean, you know, that just sort of sounds like a prop at first, right? You know, so he's sitting on a chair. But when you think about it, most of the time, the Tanakh doesn't tell us where a person is and, and whether they're sitting or standing or, or you know, I mean, that, that's not such a common tool of characterization. But both in Perak Aleph and in Perak Dalid, Eli in Shmuel Aleph, of course, Eli, who is the Kohen Hagadol in the malfunctioning Mishkan in Shiloh is described as sitting in a chair. He's also described as very heavy. He's also described as 98 years old. And the Mishkan itself is described as, um, well, I'll say before that in Paragimel, we're told, Vahi bayom hahu ve'eli shochev bimkomo. So in addition to sitting on a chair in two separate psukim, he's also lying in his place. And what place is that? It is the Mishkan where ner elokim terem yichbe, where the candle of God has not quite gone out yet. Right? So you have this, this imagery which is being used to depict a very static situation, a situation which is not looking likely to change, even though from what we see about what's going on in the Mishkan, things should change. Right. So you're suggesting the fact that him sitting on the chair or lying down has to do with the fact that he is no longer connected to the reality around him. Is that the... That he can no longer move it forward. Okay. That he's, he, very he's static. static. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and heavy and not able to... And in the meantime, you have the, you know, the, the, the candle flickering out. I mean, the Mishkan has become a place of a den of thieves, really. Yeah. And, and, and a den of, you know, terrible, terrible, egregiously terrible, um, misbehavior. And so, and, and, you know, and his sons are the ones who are, who are, you know, doing these terrible it. things. Yeah. yeah. And he can't change it. So these are tools of characterization.
Yeah. I think another, another journey that is, uh, that is also sort of thick with, uh, with metaphoric imagery is the beginning, the beginnings of Shaul, uh, which of course his beginnings are also a foreshadowing of the, of the difficulties and ultimately the failure that will come later of his career. Um, but first we have Shaul sort of, you know, he's unable, he's looking for his father's, for his father's donkeys. Um, something is eluding him, meaning it's not just the donkeys themselves, but we sort of see Shaul, he's always sort of a step behind, which we'll also see that later on in the stories as well, um, where, you know, he's, he's running after something and unable to find it. Um, he, uh, his Na'ar is the one who was able to enlighten along the way, but he himself doesn't have that information, which is again, part of being that step behind. Um, he also has no money and no bread. He doesn't have any of that sustenance. And again, the beginnings of Shaul, he does meet some women along the way and then almost has a well scene, but then doesn't have the well scene. Um, but the beginnings of Shaul also foretell the fact that he will be a step behind and won't be able to catch up. I think if I, if I could put it in a, in a brief sentence, something else we want to add to that, Yale? Yeah, I'll just add that bread in general is in Sefer Shmuel in particular. Yeah, in Sefer Shmuel in particular. All over the place. Yeah. Is a symbol of who has authority. I mean, don't forget that the word lechem is etymologically related to milchama, bread and war. The one who has sustenance can be a good leader, can give, you know, provisions to soldiers. And so it's a symbol of authority. And when, when Shaul starts out his life without bread, or his hands are empty, his, his kelim, his vessels are empty, right? That's also another metaphor. So we're looking at these little pieces of information that the Tanakh sometimes provides and sometimes doesn't that are always there to give us insights into the characters. Um, you know, who has bread? Who, um, who's, who, who's taking good care of their vessels, right? David as opposed to Shaul. Mm-hmm. Shaul's vessels are empty. He's using them to hide. He's hiding behind the vessels. And David is very much, you know, taking care of his vessels. Um, you know, clothing. Who's described with clothing? Uh, and what does that mean to a story? And it doesn't necessarily mean vanity. Right, you know, Goliath. Clothing is, in Sefer Breshit and the story of Yosef and his brothers is is love and favor, right? With his father giving clothing and also him giving Benjamin clothing. Um, what you're trying to say is that the symbols themselves can their meaning can shift, meaning the symbols themselves have to be understood within the context that they're given, and that what you need to do is sort of take a combination of where you know the story is going until now, right? And then reading back and seeing, well, were, the, were there signs earlier on, right? It's not that every single object or every single prop, so to speak, is necessarily going to be highly significant. But when we do already know the end of the story, sometimes we can read back and see how those those notes are very significant. Yeah, and, and also you just want to be paying attention to the details, right? I mean, you know, Goliath is wearing all this armor and the, the psukim go on and on describing his armor so that you emerge from those psukim understanding that Goliath is his armor, that the plishti uh, strength is, is deeply intertwined with this perception of might makes right, of, of physicality, of, of, you know, larger than. It also obviously makes David's triumph for him that much more surprising and, and unbelievable, right? Because we get the sense of 
when we look at him and we sort of get described, you know, all the way up and down of how he looked, we feel overwhelmed, right? As, as the reader, we feel overwhelmed by how impressive and scary this, this man is. And then a few weeks later, we have David, you know, overtaking him. Yeah. And it's terrifying, but it's, it's the real essence of the theme of Shmuel Aleph and the theme of kingship in general. Which Shmuel Aleph begins with Tfilat Chana, where she says, Kilo v'choach igbar ish, right? Uh, people do not become strong through physical might. That's the difference between Goliath and David. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're looking at the armor, you want to understand it. Maybe, um, well, I'll just close with one more point, and, you know, if you have another point, you know, just one more rapid-fire point, which is food for thought, which is uh, Izevel, right? Uh, Izevel is described, she's the only one in Tanakh, not in the Midrash, but in Tanakh, that is described with eye makeup, right? She puts yeah. on her eye makeup. She goes to That's the beauty parlor, mm-hmm. right? She, she does her hair. Um, and it's right. It's because she knows that Yehu Ben Nimshi is coming to kill her. And she is portrayed. She's like Eliyahu. She's the mirror image of Eliyahu in, yeah. in many ways. But what I mean is, is that she's unchanging. She never gives an inch. She's the uh, you know, she's the, the, the one who remains so ideologically committed that even at that moment where she knows that her death is coming, she puts on her makeup, she does her hair, and she goes out with dignity. I mean, there's something about it which I think is impressive, even though obviously the Tanakh is interested in trampling her dignity quite literally, yeah. right? She's trampled to mm-hmm. death. But the idea, of course, you know, her death is the opposite of of Eliyahu's end, right? She's thrown from the window down and trampled by horses, and he's taken upward by horses, right? Heavenward. So, you know, this final, this, these final moments of Yuzevel's life, they so characterize her, that, that makeup. I mean, I, I, it always gets me. I think it's really very, um, there's something very wonderful in this, in this portrait that the Tanakh gives us of Yuzevel in her last moments. Yeah, you know, if I could summarize, I think some of the some of the also practical learning tips that we're taking from today's episode, um, because really one of our goals in these in these episodes is not just to bring you hopefully what is somewhat of a moving uh, character sketch or, or idea, but is to also try and, and give you uh, some some tools of study. And I think that some of the things we mentioned is also noticing. The development from beginnings uh, and later on in a story, right? The perhaps that we can call the foreshadowing, or the early DNA that's sort of set in a story. And we we brought Moshe just as an example, but there are many others um, that that one can look at as well. Uh, and we spoke about uh, noticing noticing development, possibly noticing development through the use of of. Uh, of um, of symbols, right? What, meaning physical symbols. If it's a chair or it's makeup or it's armor, but also noticing that those symbols, um, that those items can be metaphors or they have deeper meaning regarding where the character stands at that moment and, and where they're going from there. So it's sort of this combination of trying to look at things in their broader sense, but also very noticing very much the beginnings and how things develop. It just gives us a good place to hold on to and then to be able to judge from there. And also certainly in a particular scenario to look at the details of the scenario. Not every detail will always be significant, um, but to look at the details that seem like they may be pregnant with significance and to try and unwrap um, unwrap the meaning of what that could be. Yeah. Well, I'll just close with Ibn Ezra totally agrees with you that not every detail has significance. The Midrash does not, right? The Midrash thinks that every single detail should be interpreted 
And Ibn Ezra has some like, you know, interesting comments where he'll say, what is the significance of that? Because it was, you know, not everything has to have significance, um, you know, but we do tend to look at these stories and every detail of the way that they're presented as having significance. So that's the ha on our further studies. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.